everybody. This is the TCP. I am John Stamp. Tonight, Tiger is with me, but uh, his eyes are already fluttering, so I don't think we're going to hear much from him tonight. Um, nothing big uh, from me before we get into uh, to chatting about uh, about some uh, some a really fun couple of novellas that I stumbled into. Um, one thing though, I am wrapping up uh, Blood Red Ivory two. Uh, the Tyrone Benhoff part two still untitled because as I've mentioned before I suck at writing blurbs and I suck at writing titles so um but I got I'm pretty sure I got like 10,000 to go and then I'll then I got a couple rounds of editing and then I uh, go see what the publisher thinks of it so more to follow on that also um the TCP uh, IG is approaching a thousand followers um I've never uh, been one to see uh, or care how many people follow me but since that number's hanging over my head i kind of want to get there so if you haven't hit follow yet at, at that's criminal podcast and would like to help me jump over that hill um have at it and also while you're doing that like and subscribe to tcp and uh just to just because why not it's a competition right uh, might as well see how many we can get and that's uh, whatever pl platform you stream, uh, Apple, Spotify, there's like a dozen of them out there. I can't even think of all of them. So, but that's it. Uh, give me a hand and I would appreciate it. But enough of that administrative nonsense. Tonight, uh, we're going to talk to FX Reagan. Uh, FX Reagan was a police officer in a major metropolitan police department and an FBI special agent and SWAT team member. He retired more than 33 years of law enforcement service and retired as a special agent in charge in SAC of a large FBI field division. Uh, the uh, novella that I stumbled onto, uh, Project Area 51 Project uh, Sapphire, uh, is a trio. Uh, there's Area 51 Project Onyx. Um, they're the beginning of a, a series that was super fun because it uh, involves a, a homicide out of no place other than Area 51. It's right in the title. Uh, the third one should be coming out in June. In addition to these uh, to these uh, pretty uh, unique novellas that I that I found, um, FX has also uh, written two full length novels in, uh, surrounding a dismissed FBI agent turned PI, CJ Hawk, uh, involving murder, conspiracy, and rogue gov government operations in and around DC. Uh, third is in development, and all are inspired by actual events, including murders in the nation's capital. And if, as if that's not enough, he's got another series um, pending featuring a Fairfax County uh, detective, Kiki Diaz, uh, in production as we go. First novella from that one should be coming out in the fall of 23. Um, so with all that, he actually found time to come join me. So FX, thanks for joining me and uh, floor is yours. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on the podcast. Absolutely. Um, my first note. So Area 51 takes place you know post very fresh post uh world war ii uh the perfect uh setting uh in my mind i and uh, my first note was that this novella feels like bud from la confidential stumbles into a nasa meeting <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> that's good that's really good <laughs> yeah uh yeah so and it's uh there was uh there's just not enough uh noir in the world so that that, that setting just uh, how did you land on going into that point in time to to start Okay, so I love noir. I kind of like the concept, I guess, maybe because I'm a cynic by nature, which the job <laughs> yeah. will do to you um, for former coppers and feds out there. And 
I was fascinated by Area 51. I think it's kind of an, you know, a, a neat area of, no pun intended, a neat area of uh, mystery. And everybody is, you know, at a, an allure of what's going on out there. And I, I actually wrote those novellas after I completed the first two full-length novels, the C.J. Hawk novels that are out there. They're both with an editor and um, a couple agents taking a look at them as well. So while that is is going on, while the editor kind of spiffs these things up and and we try and get, you know, a really good A-list agent, which is tough to do, as any writer would know, um, I kind of wanted to fill my time with something. And so I thought, you know, if Area 51 is kind of a neat concept, uh, what goes on out there. I know police work. So I kind of came up with this concept of uh, a crusty old Washington, D.C. detective you know, my hero, John Block, Jack Morrison, uh, who gets sent out there against his will. And uh, as you know, from reading the first one, it involves kind of a serial murderer out there at Area 51. It's kind of too sensitive for people who control Area 51 to investigate themselves. They don't want to call the feds in. So uh, the guy that runs security out there reaches out for an old friend of his who's a chief in the Washington Metropolitan D.C. Police Department and asks for help. The chief has just the man. Uh, Blackjack Morrison is kind of a troublemaker, always on the bubble. And so as punishment, he gets set out there to, to solve this, this series of two homicides and does in, uh, in pretty quick order. And, you know, I thought it was kind of fun. I, I had a fun time putting it together. And so I decided to do another one and then the third one. And in fact, I've literally got an outline on paper for a fourth as well. Yeah. As long as the ideas keep coming, right. And, mm-hmm. uh, and the uh, that novella format, it's uh, like I, I, I kind of this uh, this actual podcast ended up being the evolution from a blog that in hindsight was probably pretty terrible. But um, I can't I could not write the short fiction thing. I could knock out 100,000 words. But to wrap, I had a buddy who wanted me to uh, he was doing a, a anthology and he needed like a 5,000 word story. Uh, it's something horror, which I can do. I, I, I got the dark side. I could not, I could, I could uh, outline it out, but I could not wrap that thing up within uh, that, that window. Um, and I know in a Navali, you got, you got some more room to play with, but uh, me in that short um, genre has just uh, never been something I was good at. So I, I don't, uh, but the way you put these out they're they're just nice episodics, you know, and that's uh, you know, you get to know uh, Morrison, and I and I love you know the the part that we're we're just post World War II. Um, everybody around them in that DC metro area is a little bit messed up. Every everybody's pretty much a functioning alcoholic and just trying trying not to circle the drain too fast. Um, correct, correct. And and yeah, and as you mentioned, like his bosses are pretty much, which was one of my favorite points that you made was that these guys are all oss guys so they're just like yeah we're super spies and some of them are still super spies i'm a you know he's his boss is a lieutenant in the in the homicide division but they all have that that super spy background that you just know there's there's like the whole background of those guys too there's so much depth to the people that you created even though they're relatively minor characters just that 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 setting just allows all of that well, that was fun. And, and yeah, to your point, the first one, uh, Project Sapphire, takes place in 1955. The second one, <laughs> Project Onyx, takes place in 1963. And there's a little bit of the Kennedy assassination woven there that readers will 
we'll find. Uh, the third one that'll come out in June takes place in 1969, and there's a little bit of the um, the moon landing spun him there. And then the one that I'm thinking about, and I want to give too much away, is going to be like 1971, 72 timeframe. So I got to be careful how I age out uh, John Blackjack Morrison, but I, I think I can do it. And I, I don't think too many things changed, at least uh, with him and the policing world and what he deals with in, in that time frame. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, starting it out in 55, you still got that, like I alluded to uh, LA Confidential, you just got that wild um pretty much people were still figuring out what their constitutional rights meant. So it's, right, it's kind right. of wide open, you know, <laughs> right. Uh, I was talking to uh, who was it? I had one of my, one of the people I talked to last year. Um, we had a, a great conversation because they were, they were writing in that period. It was a true crime thing. Oh, it was, uh, it wasn't Sadler. might've been Sadler. Um, but it was basically a, a guy who was hiding out a fugitive, hiding out in a barn and took out this couple but then had so many appeals based on the way they ran his interrogation, the way they processed him, that they violated so many rights. And it was like the first time this agency had run up to some run up against somebody with an actual defense attorney. Right. Right. <laughs> and they're like, wait, we set the precedent for this. Oh, oh no. Yeah. We set precedent again. Uh, appeals court got us. We just set another yeah. precedent, you know? So it's, it's a, uh, it's just that that time in law enforcement is such a wild time that it's, it, it lends to a lot of freedom that, you know, nowadays probably would not be, I mean, you don't have a shot really. Well, no, because everything they do is recorded video and audio. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, I mean, part of, part of the fun of that and in my first CJ Hawk novel takes place in 1985, 1986, 1991. And writing, you know, before we had all this technology is fun for me because you get a lot more into the human dynamic there. We're not talking about cell phones, you know, detectives and, and private eyes can't just, you know, geolocate everybody. They can't pick up the phone and call everybody. They got to go use a pay phone. They got to figure out a way to meet somebody. And, and that's a lot of fun. Maybe it's because I, I grew up in that sort of period. And, you know, by the time I left law enforcement, of course, all these things had come along. But the real, you know, human element, the human factor takes place, I think, in especially storytelling pre-technology. It's just, it, it's too easy to i don't say it's easy to solve crimes today it's easier i'll tell you that (laughs) Um, with with all the technology so you really have to these detectives really have to work it and i like that yeah and they they have to be able to talk they have to be able to talk their way into places and out of places right and uh that is quickly becoming a lost art you know it's it's uh it's really unfortunate but you know a lot of times especially uh my background ended up more towards the personal crime elements but once you grab somebody's phone, you you pretty much got them, you know, as long right. as I don't have something, as long as Apple uh, decides not to let them let them stay encrypted, you know. Right, right. <laughs> if you can get but, in there. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, as far as like just uh, just doing basic surveillances and talking your way out of places when people are asking what you're doing, that's that's a people don't have to concentrate on that as much anymore. And it's right. It's uh, it's just a it's a it's a different thing. But, yeah, I see the uh, the advantages would be. You know the advantages today because I let's you know I I got some some time out of the field at this point but you know today it's it's all so app driven and everybody is basically like the highest speed digital forensics guy um, from ten years ago that's a that's a rookie coming out of the academy at this point they're all they're all just they got them it's it it takes away from the human element a little bit like you said 
I have a feeling, and I saw a lot of it toward the end of my career, uh, detectives and, and federal agents, I think, spend a lot of time in the office behind a screen. That's where the evidence is now. That's where the leads are. But it's just, that's a lot different than being out, you know, on the bricks, as they call it, or, you know, knocking on doors, talking to yeah. people. And they're effective. I'm not being critical of them, but, you know, driving around with a roll of quarters and a can of Lysol to use a payphone. There's a lot to be said yeah. for that. <laughs> that. Right. Yep. Yeah. It's a, it's, yeah, it's just different. I, I, I don't sit still well. So that's uh yeah, I have to be out, out when I was, I me not being out in the street would, would drive me a little bit insane if, uh, if it was uh, when I was stuck at a desk. So um, like not to jump but, around too much, but you know, the, the second CJ Hawk novel I, I've completed is with an editor looking, you know, agents looking at it. It's called uh, Zulu center. I, what I what I do there is talk about the problem with technology. It centers around, you know, a rogue operation that gets set up, Zulu Center. And I don't want to give too much away yet, but the center exists to manipulate DNA for undercover officers, special operators, things like that, because that is such a problem today. You know, it's not really easy for a special operator, a CIA officer, undercover FBI agent to go in and out of a scenario where they can't get found out. Um, you know, your passport is all digital, digital face, uh, you know, prints, things like that. So what I approach in Zulu Center is what can go wrong? You know, when, for, for, for a very good reason, the government decides to set up a center that manipulates people's ID, including turning on and off DNA that doesn't really belong to them. And then yeah. that can go really wrong when, the, the scenario unfolds. And that's what I did with, with that second CJ Hawk novel and how he kind of unravels what went wrong. Yeah. And uh, give me one second. Tiger has just decided he's leaving. So I mean, okay, let, well, let, him let, out. Me let this, let, let this guy out of here. I'll be right back. Got it. Come on, big kid. Sorry. He's usually sleeping by now. <laughs> he's usually sleeping by now but not that's tonight. all right yeah i got two of them um, running around here if you hear any barking so <laughs> yeah it's yeah it's they're they're worth it <laughs> um but yeah okay so when you said that i immediately like defaulted the tropic thunder <laughs> like robert Downey jr um <laughs> turning himself into a black man so he could get into right. character right, and right. uh yeah just the, you know the the great thing about that whole dna you know mapping the genome there's so much potential there. I've never even never thought about, you know, what the undercovers would think. They're like, yeah, you're, you're, you're great right now, but we're going to make you tie for the next two weeks. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you turn, turn an Irishman tie and be like, God, I, I, I'm not cool with that. You know, I'll go do some deals and I'll meet with some bad people, but I really don't want you turning me into somebody else. Right. Yeah. I, uh, I wonder what the, uh, I don't know. That's man. That's a tough question. I mean, you, I mean, you've worked with a bunch of people that the undercover people are a different kind of person. Like they can, they just are. And cause I know I could never do it. Um, but I, I actually wonder if, if offered, which how many of them would be like, yeah, let's go. How long is this going to take? Yeah. Give me everything false. And I, and I ran an undercover in the nineties when it was just starting to become a problem. We worried about, um, you know, backstopping credit cards, social security numbers. And we had all that. We think that the bureau had figured it out. Um, but the, that, I mean, today it's, you know, 20 years later, 30 years later. So there's so yeah. much more technology out there that can trap you. 
and we've had so many data breaches that um, you know before you even decide you want to become a certified undercover, uh, the the opponents already probably have your. If we're working CI, they probably already got your all your information. Oh yeah, uh, you yeah. I don't I don't know how many times I've gotten ID Protect <laughs> sponsored mm-hmm. by the federal government. Exactly. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that's it. Uh, that's a very interesting take. I'm looking forward to that. Um, but that you know, sticking with the same topic, uh, the technology piece. You working in the in the 50s, you know, you've got a couple crime scenes there. You've got some forensics considerations. Uh, did you have any trouble while you were um, while you were writing uh, these particular parts of the investigation and not overstepping the technology of the period? I don't think so. Um... Because what I what I really focused on in the first one was sort of the profiling angle. And everybody knows what that is now. Sort of a premise that I had for the 50s was that, you know, profiling existed because cops are cops. I mean, they see a couple of things, they put two and two together and say, hey, this is four. Um, but what they didn't have was what happens in Kansas City, what happens in Chicago, what happened in Arizona, New York, Washington, D.C. And you know, flash forward to the late 70s, early 80s, when profiling really became a thing. The ability to talk to your fellow officers and agents across the country and compare notes and things like that are what really brought the profiling uh, to the forefront. And we see in, you know, Project Sapphire, there's a, there's a, yeah, Jack Black, who's a smart guy, and there's a smart uh, ME at an Air Force base, that between the two of them, they kind of come up with, hey, we've seen this before. This, this is a profile of a serial killer, and maybe he's done it before. Again, we don't want to give too much away, but that's, you know, where Jack takes it. Yeah, and you and you managed to, to rope in a couple really good, uh, you know, historical uh, whodunits uh, in, into that as part of the right. profile, which right, is right. always entertaining, you know. Sure. Um, so... That's uh that's the one thing I was as I was reading, I was like, I was like, I wonder if you know he's thinking, you know what I really need is a blue light. Like, oh wait, no, that's that's 30 years too 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 yeah. soon. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's uh but yeah, it's just funny. So they got uh yeah, I don't want to give too much away from away from it, but with the uh with the area 51, you alluded to a couple places in area 51 that like even the bosses would would disappear into a deep dark hole if they even broached right. um and you've you've always got that on the backside you know the uh that whole uh, being area 51 and being alluded to the whole ufo thing you stick to known technology so far is there now i don't want you to give anything away but is there are you, are, are you ever going to play into that uh that sci-fi zone oh 100 yeah. percent um so yeah you get into the second one onyx he learns a little bit more about what's going on in 27 Alpha and 27 Bravo. And then you flash forward to book three, which is uh, is called Project Lunar Dust. And all is supposedly un- unveiled to him where they tell him, okay, here's what's really going on here. And he may or not, may not believe it. We'll see at the end. And we might see in future books whether or not he's just being fed a line of bull or what that is. Awesome. You know, what he's told is, is actually what's going on there. So, yeah. Yeah. There's so much potential there, especially um, with the, uh, you know, mixing that noir and then blending that, that sci-fi side that there's, yeah. there's a lot to be played around with in, yeah. the, in that space. Yep. It's, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so with, uh, you, you know, three novels, uh, three novellas, 
Um, were you always uh, were you always carrying a notebook with you? Like when did the when did you start? Were you uh, were you writing since you were a kid, or is it something that just kind of came to you at some point you wanted to try? Or well, I, I've always been a reader. Um, uh, you know, growing up reading books, Hardy Boys, and you know whatever was out there. I mean, not nose buried in a, in a, in a book. In fact, that probably the least amount of reading I ever did was in college. <laughs> <laughs> I probably yeah. should have been reading and not partying. Um, but yeah, I was interested in, uh, of course, being in law enforcement. I, I was drawn to, you know, Joseph Wamba, love the Michael Connolly stuff. And I, I've just always been like that. And to answer your question, um, thought, you know, post law enforcement career, I would, you know, do some writing. And, and I started out putting together a, uh, you know, kind of a, a nonfiction my life in law enforcement. It just, it just, I, I've read so many crummy books like that. I just yeah. figured it just, that didn't really seem to do it. I mean, I, there's nothing I can go back and talk about my career and, you know, such and such a date, I was this. And then I went to Quantico and scored a 280 on the firearm. I just, <laughs> it just doesn't work. Uh, and, but I, but I scratched that. I mean, I put together some stories, the things that really happened, you know, you've been in law enforcement a long time, you know, that things just happen that are, you know, sad, funny, tragic, all of the above. And they make great stories, but they didn't, when I, when I wrote it out as sort of a, you know, autobiography, it just didn't work. And so I, mm. I just thought, well, what, if, how would this look in fiction? Let me take some of these stories, you know, put them into a larger arc. Uh, that, that first CJ Hawk book that I wrote, 90% of that book is all true. <laughs> it just happens to be <laughs> out of order out of place. It didn't happen in this city or that city, but they're all, you know, every little vignette is something that I really saw, heard, experienced, um, you know, and it just, I've got a lot of great things to work with. So, yeah. Yeah. I was always, uh, always worried about, I've always been worried about getting names uh, and, um, and making things a little too, um, like too dead on, you know, so right, I've always tried right. to stay it. I, I didn't want to copy down, you know, cases, right. but because I was, I'd be afraid I'd get either my subject in there or I'd put like another detective I worked with in there. Um, so I've, I've, I've tried to be cognizant of not like, like you said, you know, put it out of place to do stuff like that. But um, yeah. It's, well, here's, it's, here's another challenge with that, John. If you put too much of it, that's real. People won't buy it. I mean, you, you know, you see stuff that <laughs> yeah, I think it's ridiculous. If you wrote it word for word, it's the way it came down. People go, "It's not true. That couldn't happen that way." It couldn't happen. I, mean, I, yeah. I was talking with talking with my editor just a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about the uh, the case out in Idaho of you know the the killer that went in and killed four college students. You you put that in a timeline of what happened and exactly when with a PhD criminology student and made it fiction. People would go, "This this couldn't happen." I mean, nobody's that stupid to do what he did here or open to do what he did there. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, fiction is harder than truth because you yeah. got to make it believable. Yeah. And that's uh, it's when, you know, when you mentioned you were, you know, scratching out the autobiography, all the different things that happen. When I've when I've looked at that, I've always thought that the the best thing to do would be a blooper reel, especially from like, you know, the the stupid, the just insane things that happen on patrol. Um, the random conversations that start on a long-term surveillance, you know, just, you know, cracking up with the subject in the back of a car and, and during a transport or something, all those, all those just crazy things that people 
a will be like yeah you're making all this up like this this does not happen you guys are in a serious profession it's like no not not really <laughs> right <laughs> right yeah, right yeah you get down to it but yeah but same thing is like you know the the guys from back in the day would be cracking up but like the random person picking up be like yeah these guys are all either clowns or this is fiction <laughs> right <laughs> <You> now <laughs> yeah there was a you maybe saw today on twitter there was a tom colgan who's an editor at penguin does like a little you know blog every day and today he wrote about uh, barney miller and how it was the best tv show for those of us that kind of remember that era and it was a comedy you know and, and these guys basically just sat around the detective room in nypd and you know shot the shit and talk, talked about what was going on and there was no shootouts there was no hostage situations <laughs> there was no action or anything like that but it was pretty realistic that's what they did they sat around the coffee machine talked about how to solve cases Talked about all the problem people in the department and on the street and all of that might have been the most accurate police show in history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I I still remember that when I was a little kid, very little. I, yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, and um, but yeah, it's it's that's the the best part of of law enforcement. I think that's uh, you know, capturing the ridiculousness is just the best part. You know, yeah. Um, Wamba Wamba made made a million dollars doing that. Yeah. You know? He took his 15 years in LAPD. I have a friend of mine, former agent, who was also an LAPD officer before he came to the Bureau. Wamba, after he <coughs> wrote the first book, left the department so he could write full-time, hung out at a cop bar so he could keep up with what's going on. He literally brings his notebook in there, talk to the cops, write down the little vignettes that they're talking about, go back and spin them into novels. It's yeah. all true. Yeah, and they're classics. And yeah, uh, just, but classics. just the way he spins them in, that's, I, uh, yeah, I, Wamba was, was, uh, that was uh, the Choir Boys, one of the first books I got right. into when I was right. decided I, this is what I was going to do, it was going to be in law enforcement. And that, that just cracked me up just nonstop. Yeah. But even when you're reading it, you're just like, nah, there's, come on, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. So, um, how what uh you know speaking of, of how you ever started it do you uh do you carry around a notebook with you what's uh how do you go about um you know deciding you've got blackjack morris morrison and you're going to send them to area 51 where does that how do you how do you come up with your ideas um yeah you know, I, I think i just come up with a with a a major uh kernel of an idea and you know just kind of spin it from there and i've done you know, I, I, I go back and forth between, you know, outlining, like doing really detailed outline and just doing seat of my pants stuff. Um, for these novellas, I, I really just kind of fly with the idea because it's only, I think they're no more than 25,000 words. And I don't have a problem with them. I, I, you know, frankly, I fear more the 100,000 words than I do the 25,000 words. So I kind of have a beginning, a middle and an end in mind. I know how this is going to go. And then I just let, you know, the characters kind of fill in, you know, how it goes. So I, I don't really, um, I don't notebook it out ahead of time. What I do do is, is keep notes as I'm going. I have like a, you know, master Excel spreadsheet with every character, every place, every weapon. The CJ Hawk novels have a lot of bourbons and books in them. So I'll, every time I do one of those, I'll flip over to the Excel spreadsheet and make sure I note it so I can go back and look later. Guns, every Yep. 1911 I ever put in there I put down the specs and things like that so that I know where it was and how I used it and all of that 
but yeah, for the novellas, I just kind of let the, you know, I just let the story fill in the beginning, middle and end. And 25,000 words is about a hundred pages. And, you know, I'm not wedded to 25 even, and I'm not really pacing myself to make it end right there, just to make sure you get enough in there, enough detail uh, that you have a flavor for the characters, the important characters. Some of them you're just not going to have time to really learn about and just let that go. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so I guess you'd kind of be a, a hybrid. You, you take notes, but you don't have a defined roadmap that's going to get you from A to A to Z. On, on the longer novels, the three that I'm working on, well, the two that I did and the one I'm working on, I, I do, uh, and I learned this from Jack Carr, you know, who's been pretty damn successful. Uh, he sits down and does a, uh, you know, executive outline. And, you know, maybe it's a page and a half of the story, the main character of the story, really down and dirty page and a half. Do that. And then I put down just like some bullet points of stuff that I really think I need to cover uh, throughout the story. And then I continue to add to it as I'm going. So if I think of, a, of an idea in the middle of writing, go back to that outline and just put a bullet point of that. And then more importantly, I keep that sort of, I call it a reverse outline. So for like chapter one, I'll put a synopsis of what happened in chapter one, chapter two, a little synopsis of what happened that. So after every chapter, I'm going back to the outline because, you know, if you get to, you know, 60, 70,000 words, you kind of forget what happened, where it happened. So I'll just go back, you know, to, to my reverse outline and say, oh yeah, that chapter 17, CJ Hawk went to, you know, the police station in Alexander and he learned this. And okay, now refresh my recollection, go back to where I'm at and plug in the details. So yeah, that's, that's like my morning summary. Like I'll get the, get my writing time done uh, one morning. And then before I get back to it, either before I head out to work or, or before I start typing, I'll look at that last chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, and the thing is, yeah, you get up to like, I, like I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm about at that 70,000 mark on, uh, on blood red, blood red two. And, uh, the problem is I'm, it's getting to the point of time to wrap stuff up. And as I'm going, I'm just like, all right, what was the name of that street? So it's like, and I, and I have a rule where I don't interrupt my, my flow. So if I'm, I'm yeah. getting my writing time in, it's like, well, uh, I forgot that dude's name. Hash, 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 hash. We'll find that later. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, did I give him a, an M4 or what is, what is this guy rolling with right now? Does he have a vest on? Does he not? I'm like, oh crap. You know, cause yeah, yeah it's cause I, I'll, uh, sometimes I'll outfit everybody and then, be like, well, this is making it way too easy. So I got to go back and carve out. I'm like, nah, you don't need, you don't, you don't need a, an M4 right now. This is, you you know, you're on, you're losing right now. So get that, get that out of there. It gives you a little too much firepower. Um, I don't think your gun should work. You know, you, you've just been right. thrown into this. I think you only need one magazine because you were traveling, didn't plan on being here today. Right. So right. just have right. to, having to go back and, and, and take away or build up. But yeah, it's like, I have so many like highlights or hash points in my draft that I'm just like, it's, it's all going back to it because I, um, I do it in a, I keep a notebook. Um, so I got the keyboard and I got the notebook. So anytime I get a new character, boom, I just put them in there, new spot, new location, new gear. And, and, but at 70,000, it's, you know, 30 pages of notes at this point. It's like, yeah, yeah. We'll catch that on the edits. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. So, um, but yeah, so, all right. So we've got, uh, the um the three novellas uh, who was it okay so what's that the the next one i wanted to ask you about the uh the fbi agent turned pi mm-hmm. um did because you uh you you've spent time in the in the pi world right i did yeah yeah um 
So is it, it's, it, I, I try to visualize that because I had a couple of friends at the police department that, that went and tried that, that uh, private investigator route and within like, a, within like a year. Yeah. They're, they're back and you know, whatever rank they did have is now gone, you know, they're on midnight shift. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that just, it seems like it'd be a, a really hard transition going from the resources and the structure of, you know, of all, of all places, the FBI where, you know, call uh, you know i need a g5 no problem it'll be here in a minute you know? <laughs> yeah that happens all the time <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for me that, anyway that was, the director that was always, can pull that off <laughs> yeah that was always my goal was like i just want to ride on the g5 yeah. not to get in trouble because i've yeah. seen people get the g5 ride back to the hoover building but you know a g5 <laughs> ride for something i wasn't going to make the news for <laughs> cool. i mean but i'll yeah. tell you my last my last assignment you said i was in sac I had one of the bureau pilots tell me, you ever need to get out there, boss, you let me know. We can get you out there, look at it, split on the bureau plane. I said, negative. <laughs> I will be <laughs> yeah. driving myself out there. <laughs> yeah. I am not yeah. getting on a bureau plane to go somewhere unless the director tells me. <laughs> yep, yep. And it, uh, But yeah, I remember I was uh, TDY at the uh, NCTC, and they had like a short fuse thing to go pick somebody up and do a do a transfer and i was like i was like oh i'll do it because they said as soon as they said g5 i'm like yeah i'm in like where are we going and the guy's like sit down rookie <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, oh, that was worth a shot you miss 100 percent of the shots you don't take <laughs> um so you have three three series that you're kicking off how many how many of those that well i guess i mean four if you count area 51 right because you've no, three. got yeah, it's okay. It's the Air 51 series, CJ Hawk, and then the, the newest one, Kiki Diaz. That's the, yeah, Kiki Diaz. How far out are you planning these? Like, um, like, do you have multiple stages planned, or or do you did you develop this character and be like, yeah, I can run with this? Um, or you know, how far out are you planning these? These well, I, what I plan is in three book uh, arcs, basically. I mean, and I'm I'm open to going a lot longer than that, especially on uh, CJ Hawk if if those books take off, if I can get the right age and the right publisher. And even if I can, I mean, I've done a lot of exploring the self-published world. I'm confident about it. I think it's really changed the industry. Um, I've learned a lot from the, uh, the uh, novellas that I've published already. I mean, they're under a private label press, but it's effectively self-published. It's a press that I control. Um, So I'm, I'm comfortable with that concept. And Again, just thinking in three book arcs um, and already having the ideas for a fourth uh, Blackjack Morrison that I really think I can pull off maybe before the end of the year. I've got a really cool concept for a fourth CJ Hawk after the third one that I'm kind of working on now. I'm going to finish up the first Key Diaz novella, then I'll go back to um, finishing up the fourth, I mean, the third CJ Hawk novel. So I think in three book arcs, and then if I can expand them past there, then then I'll do so, mm-hmm. depending on what becomes successful and what the readers want. That's really what matters. Yeah, yeah, actually, absolutely. Which one, which one's hits? Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, it's funny you mentioned the self publishing versus the uh, you know getting a publisher route, and it's that's uh, I've done one that I just wanted to self publish, and then I did not have the patience that you do because you you know you've got two and you're letting them float through editors and you're letting them right, right. I, I could ask you your rejection letter number but i, I you know it's high it's it's, it's high. high i mean doing, yeah. it, doing it yourself yeah. the, the editor yeah. i'm working with actually knows a lot of the, the this editor is, has written successfully himself in addition to being um you know an editor he's a, he's a 
a published author successfully. Um, so, but before him, just shotgunning it to to editor, I mean to agents, it's it's tough. That's a tough business, as you know. Mm. Um, I've had a lot some soft interest from um, some minor presses in the C.J. Hawk full length novels, but I I don't want to go there. I mean, if my my thought is, why would I go to a small press if I can be a small press? Um, yep. Yeah. So I'm kind of keeping that in the back of my head. Yeah, and with all the uh, the tools available to us at this point, it's it, it for me. And now that I'm I'm approaching number eight, and I've gone both roads, you know, a small press to a, a medium press to um, to doing it myself. I, it's just, and I hate to talk. I hate you know nobody tells you about the business side when you get into this, and I I can't stand talking business when we're we've got such cooler, more stuff to talk about, like creating characters and putting pen to paper. Right. Um, right. The, I think the the hardest thing is is getting that platform built. Like, you know, you, you mentioned uh, the guys with the big five, you know, Carr and Baldacci and those guys, this just creating that swell is the, uh, is the hardest part. And I, I think once, I think anybody who figures that out is, 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 uh, is, you know, good to go, just creating that brand, but it's, it's not something they teach you, you know? And, um, it's, and, and it's, especially and it's a time, it's a time suck. That's the, oh, man, that's the biggest awful. part. Yeah. I mean, look, I think to your point, the big five exists to sell those books from Baldacci and Jack Carr and, mm-hmm. you know, the Tom Clancy franchise and Vince Flynn, because that's, you know, that's what's makes them's money, not mm-hmm. trying to discover a new author. They love to, yep. but it's that it's, it's a tough business and it's changing quickly. So that's why I think there's so much room for, people that are willing to do, you know, something else in their own press, the audio books, you know, we're breaking away from audible now being the hundred pound, well, there's still the hundred pound, 800 pound gorilla, but you can, you can go another way now with it. So, yeah. Yeah. And it's uh, and I'd never considered it before. I, um, yeah, I hadn't, hadn't, hadn't read most, a lot of novellas before. um, But the digestibility of that format, I I think that's, uh, you know, with people being so, um, their attention spans are just gone. And it's just a matter of, you know, having every bit of media that's ever been created at your fingertips at every given time, you know, that writing genre, it takes work and it's, it's uh, but for, to be able to sit down and, and hit up, you know, 25,000 words, hundred pages, it's a, you can do it without, you know, de- you know, in some cases dedicating weeks or months at a time to it. And right, it's just, right. And it, and it just keeps, you can churn it out. You can, you can keep putting out those stories and and getting that buy-in from the audience. That's a, I'd never considered that until uh, until I got into into yours. And it was pretty much I saw Area Fifty One, and I'm like, yeah, Area Fifty One in the fifties. Yep, I think I can do this. <laughs> you know? I, I think they're making a comeback. In fact, there's a couple of podcasts out there. If people want to look them up. You know, Google them, and um, they're making a comeback because it's not something that that the big five are interested in because they they don't want a hundred a hundred page book. They, they've got to have a three, 400, 500 page book to make it worth their while to print, distribute, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but now that we're in a different world with, you know, Kindle Unlimited and Scrivener and all the, it's easy to do that. And to your point, people are looking at him saying that I really like that. So yeah. I think we're going to see more and more novellas really coming on. Yep. Yeah. I, I just, I, I just think that for today's day and age, that's a, that's a great episodic way, you know, like uh, movies are going away from the big screen and we're getting Amazon, you know, eight episode features that give them more time to dive into the development and you get to know your characters more. And, you know, I'm t- of course talking 
uh that car series and um bosch stuff like that mm-hmm. but yep. the way that the way that the um, the guys at amazon took Connolly's work and nailed it every single season was uh i mean that's i don't think there's a better way to to give an author you know to put an author up on screen than than that because they were able to actually dive in instead of compressing a 700 page book into a 120 page screenplay you know right but that's an excellent point if if some of those Conley books and i'm not saying they should have been novellas because they're perfect who's going to second guess michael Conley? um but sometimes though that that bosch series is so he's has so many books out there that that i don't think they'll make all all of those books into a series because there's too many of them. So the the novella is actually kind of a little mini series almost. It's almost like a like a TV season, you know, where you can just get, you know, eight different Netflix videos and you've got, you know, kind of a summation of the story. So I, I kind of think that that may I think we're going to see a lot more novellas. Yep. Yeah, there's just in in my opinion there's just more depth than than trying to squeeze it into 2 hours on screen. Um but uh but yeah, as far as um, oh, I I got uh, there's a note. Uh, so we talked a little bit about the uh, the Area 51, the UFO thing. It's since it's out there. What uh, <laughs> ingest? What's your stance on UFOs at this point? Working, uh, you yeah. know, the more I the more I research it, and I did quite a bit of research. Uh, some of it before, and then some of it as I'm going along because I want to be, you know, it's not factual because there's no facts in USO UFOs, but I want to be you know, topical. So as I put in my author note at the end, I, I highly recommend the Rogan uh, podcast. You know, Joe Rogan does three hours at a time when he does a podcast. And he's had some terrific guests on there that really have taken a deep dive into this. And if anything, it's mind expanding. It gives yeah. you, you know, so much information to just dwell on. And that's kind of where I'm at. I, I'm completely open to you know, any scenario. I, I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Even if you read the books and you think, this is wildly conspiratorial, <laughs> I'm not. But having said that, I do think that there's, you know, there's room for debate on a lot of things. Um, and, uh, you know, I highly recommend the, any of those Joe Rogan podcasts where he brings guests on that talk about, you know, UFOs and, um, you know, all kinds of other, phenomena they're really good yeah i, I, I also uh, go ahead go ahead no go ahead i was gonna say I, I you know one of the very first things i did not in relation to this but i, I had just read it a couple of years ago and then went back to it was uh, annie jacobson's book on area 51 it's a very journalistic she's a terrific journalist everything she touches is is like interesting and well researched um she spends years on a topic as she did on this one um and so that kind of planted the seed about the aura and the mystery about area 51 and she's been on rogan as well um so a terrific read for people that if you have an interest in area 51 and you want to kind of know um what's out there factually that she's been able to uncover by reams and reams of government documents foi requests and things like that it's a terrific read yeah there was a uh, a hulu series that that she was on and um you know she's so intelligent and and cited and her references or you know her sources are are vetted that um yeah it makes you think i mean i yeah. i consider i would call myself an objective skeptic like uh mm-hmm. you know is there evidence of anything nah not at all but would the world be cooler if there was those things 
yeah absolutely so yeah you know i'm i have a standing offer to uh that i allow i would allow myself to be abducted as long as i get to drive that's <laughs> that's pretty much where i stand let yeah, me take a first fast, spin so i don't know if you want to <laughs> oh i, I can handle it, it. <laughs> yeah um so we've been uh we've been going for a, a pretty good while i wanted to though you know if if you've listened before you know if i get uh, veterans on or law enforcement on you know i gotta we i, I want to you know reach out to the community a little bit so you've had uh work you know you've you've worked on the on the city side you've worked on the federal side um if there's uh you know put it down to a, you know, 20 year old kid getting out of college, not sure, you know, do I, you know, go into grad school or do I join the police department? What would your, what would your advice be to somebody deciding, trying to decide if they want to go into law enforcement today? Yeah, this is a tough one today because law enforcement's has taken it on the chin here um, the last three years almost. And uh, un- unnecessarily, in my opinion, do things happen? Yeah. Bad things happen. It's, it's, you can't control everything that, that goes on in that environment. You all know that. But grad school versus going into law enforcement, you're going to learn more about human nature, life, the way the world works in law enforcement. You'll learn the way that academia works in grad school. So, I mean, I, I, I obviously I spent most of my adult life, all of my adult life in it. So, um, you know, we need good people to do this. It, it's tough right now. And uh, my heart's out to these departments, good departments across the country that can't retain people, can't, can't attract people because, you know, they don't want to put the, put themselves into positions, um, not just life and death decisions. We accept that going in. That, that's, you hate to say, that's the easy part, but yeah. you know, how am I going to be looked at after this? How, you know, what, what's going to come rain down on me for doing my job, for doing what I've been asked to do? You know, is it safer to, you know, go into real estate or, or insurance or something like that. Uh, not not safer from a personal injury standpoint. You know, cops and federal agents take that on. It's the whole dynamic. What's going to happen to my family? You know, a friend of mine, good friend of mine, who retired assistant director, talked about um, uh, this whole issue of you know indemnity and and law enforcement officers being immune from prosecution in the, when they're doing their job as they're supposed to be not when they step away and they're acting outside the scope but when they do the job they're supposed to be be doing and he said it perfectly i'm willing to put myself you know harm's way to be financially ruined uh to have my personal integrity question i'm not i'm not willing to do that for my family and it's really something you need to think about but you know i hope i hope you know kids 20 21 22 years old do that i mean to this day i look back and on the fact that as a 22 year old kid, literally uh, the citizens of the community I worked on gave me a badge and a gun and said, go do things and take care of us. Pretty awesome. So. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, like you said, I, I, I don't think there's any profession out there that will give you uh, an understanding of human behavior faster or more efficiently than being on a patrol car. And um, the feeling of, of pulling it off when things go really well or really crazy is you can't beat it anywhere um but yeah the idea of uh you know if, if they were to um take away you know immunity for police officers right. that's that right. puts you in the realm of paying doctors liability insurance and uh the city governments and state governments can't afford it um they won't they they won't pay cops for you know to cover liability and they won't pay them for their 
education. They want to professionalize, you know, give them a living wage in most places. I, I worked in the South and it was, you know, New York in New York state and Connecticut up in new England, those unions have, have the, uh, the wages locked down, but you get down South and it's uh it's a, it's a wild, it's a wild shot. It's, it's, it's a personally driven uh, because you want to, cause you want to do good things, like you said, but, but yeah, all those other things to, I can't even imagine that we never, I never had to worry about, uh, about that, you know, that, that was fixed. It was, you know, precedent, you know? So yeah, there's a lot, I, to, I a lot to consider. I don't think people understand immunity. When I see people popping off about taking away police immunity, they don't, what they don't understand is you have immunity to the extent you're operating under your general orders and in the scope of your authority. When you waver yeah. from that, when you're, a, you know, like the officers in Minneapolis, they weren't operating under the scope of authority. They stepped out of it. That makes yeah. them personally liable. And that's the way it ought to be. What immunity does is give officers immunity from being sued for writing a traffic ticket. Every yeah. time you give somebody a speeding ticket, if you didn't have, you know, immunity, then theoretically on your own dime, you're hiring an attorney to go into court to explain to a judge or jury as to why you gave somebody a ticket and it, that it, the system wouldn't work. Yep. And it, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't cost the, uh, it doesn't cost the plaintiff as much, you know, but uh, you have to defend yourself every time Correct. when, Correct. Uh, when the department decides not to, it's yeah. The, well, the other thing they don't understand is that the department's not off the hook. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you're, if you are operating outside the, the scope of your authority, it doesn't mean that, the department can't be sued and often are. And by the way, they're the ones that have the more money or the taxpayers that live in that jurisdiction do. And police officers have a lot of money. You write checks to defendants. No, that's that's yeah, that's not happening. Yeah. But I, I, I you know, it, nothing came of it. But I'll I remember the day I got served and it was like, oh, <laughs> man, you know, <laughs> yeah. and uh, but it, luckily there was a captain there being like, no, you're good. I'm like, really? <laughs> you know, so uh, nothing came of it, folks. Nothing came of it. Not going into yeah. it. But uh, yeah, but I checked that box. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I appreciate it. And um, I know that uh, on your socials, you've got uh, fxreagan.com, at fxreagan on Twitter and Instagram. And um, man, your schedule is full. You got, uh, we got stuff coming out in June and then uh, in the fall, like there's, there's a, there's a lot coming out. Um, I would say any, any, uh, anytime you want to come back and talk over some stuff, I'm in. I appreciate it. Yeah. I, I really appreciate you having me here. It's been terrific. Love the podcast and keep listening. I appreciate it. And, uh, and yeah, thanks for, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining me. And um, like I said, hit me up anytime. All right. Talk later, John. All right. Thanks everybody. Good night.